Walk around Berlin, and the city's monuments will make sure you remember its difficult 20th century history. I've seen most of the memorials many countless times as a Berliner, as a tour guide here, but they still are really haunting, especially when it comes to divided city to the wall or to the time of the National Socialist period. It's getting easier than ever to get around in Spain. Right now, Spain is offering the most modern fleet of high-speed trains in Europe. And while you're in the south of Spain, be sure to include a stop or two to sample the local sherry. We only think of sherry, one kind. No, there are hundreds of kinds of sherries. You have to try them. Or plan a drive around Italy to the local festivals where vendors can give you a taste of zero-kilometer dining. I know people who've been making cheese for so many generations, so I know where the cheese comes from. Walk up to Berlin's history, explore the sights of Spain, and take in some country festivals across Italy. Our travel experts help you plan a memorable vacation in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. From onions to eggplant, jackrabbits to wild boar, if you come across a festival in small-town Italy, you know it's going to be worth a stop. Coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves, we'll learn how you can join in the festivities when villages across the Italian countryside welcome you to celebrate the local harvest and food traditions like they've been doing for centuries. We'll also help you plan a great vacation to Spain with the advice of a panel of experts from Madrid and Pamplona. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Let's start things out today with a look at how the city of Berlin reminds us of its tumultuous history. Berlin has become the high-tech and cultural powerhouse of today's dynamic German economy. But there are still plenty of Berliners who can tell you about the difficulties they faced back in the 20th century as a divided city and stories of life under the Nazis during World War II. We're joined now by German tour guides Holger Zimmer and Fabian Ruger to look at some of the most impressive monuments and memorials you can visit to remember the lessons from Berlin's past. Gentlemen, thanks for joining us. Thanks, thanks for having for us. us. To live in Berlin, as a tourist, you just come and go. But to live there, you're surrounded by all of this history and all of these memorials. When you walk down the streets, does it become just background and, and you just see through it? Or are you constantly aware of, oh, this happened there, this happened there, and so on? Holger? It's part of everyday life, yes, but it's not like you kind of oversee it because it is there. It is right in your face. I've seen most of the memorials like many countless times as a Berliner, as a tour guide here, but they still are, some of them are really haunting, especially when it comes to divided city to the wall or to the time of the National Socialist period. And in the case of Germany with your complicated history, the memorials are almost there to not go away, to be in your face. I mean, there's even something called stumble stones, right, Fabian? Yes, there are memorial stones to victims of the Holocaust who were deported from particular houses and if you have a friend or relative who was deported from that house, you can donate some money to this foundation and they will put a stumbling stone into the pavement so for that person. in the in pavement. A st like you need to trip on this to never forget the That's horrible right. thing that happened right there. When you think about Germany, a lot of us are fixated on World War II and the, and the whole fascist thing. But, of course, there's many layers of the city that was the leading city of, of the Prussian Empire and so on. Fabian, when you think about memorials of the Hohenzollern period in, in Prussia... What is there in Germany to look at or in Berlin? I think the most visible that every Berliner will know is the Victory Column that's in the center of the main park, the right. Tiergarten. The Victory Column was built, you know, as a symbol of victory over the French. This is where history in Berlin connects. It was not originally standing in the spot where it is today. The Nazis moved it there to make it stand in a more triumphant spot in the very center of the city. It was originally built near the Reichstag building and was not looking quite so monumental there. Today, six major streets of Berlin lead straight towards this. And this memorial. is not part of a big axis, isn't it? I mean, Holger, the whole city is built on this axis, which is yeah. lined by 
memorials. Really. The east and west axis, and really is this fascinating thing. You look up and you see the golden angel there, and you think, wow, that's wonderful. And then you look close and you see, wow, this is all cannon. It's made of cannons. French and cannons. It, French cannons, like as a, as a um, we have this Siegesbeute as... Um, spoils of war. Spoils of war, yeah. 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 Of war. So it is a weird thing. If you, you would think, oh, that's nice, the golden Beautiful. angel, you can look but up there. It's a little jab at the French. Uh, it's a big jab at the big French. Big jab there, at the yes. French. So the Germans beat the French. And of course, uh, in the next century, we've got the whole Hitler situation and a lot of memorials relating to the nightmare of Berlin being the capital of Nazism. What are some of the memorials that you'll see when you go to Berlin that way? What I found very haunting is the memorial to the burning of the books right near Unter den Linden, yeah. right near the State Opera House. And it's basically a memorial that you wouldn't really see because it's underground. And you would just maybe pass the square and you have no idea what it is. But then quite often you see kind of tourist groups looking at nothing really. And then you look there and it basically is a hole in the ground. It's a glass plate in the ground and you look down and there is an empty library like five by five by five meters, containing empty shelves for 20,000 books, symbolizing what was happening on the 10th of May 1933 when the Nazis took all the books and the literature that they hated, that they didn't understand, that they didn't like, and were putting them in a big pile and burning them openly for people to see. And that's now, empty shelves are a very haunting memorial to that. And that's on a big square called Book Square. Bibelplatz, the Book Square, and it's facing Humboldt University. Yeah, which right, is right like opposite. the ultimate university for German culture. So many great thinkers were there, and this was symbolic of closing down that that open thinking. And, you know, I've been going to that uh, memorial for years, and it's always kind of glare and hard to see what's in there. But I went there at night last time, and it was lit up at night from inside. It was hauntingly beautiful. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with Holger Zimmer and Fabian Ruger. We're talking about memorials in Berlin. Fabian, what's a, a powerful memorial for you from the Nazi experience? There is a wonderful memorial that I think works as a general war memorial because it shows us how people just disappear. It is in Große Hamburger Straße, and there was a bomb gap there. After the war, the whole house had to be removed, and it's simply a missing house. So you only have two facades of the neighboring houses, and onto these facades, a French artist put the names of the families who lived in the missing house on the sides of those. These are the names of families who also, some of them were deported, uh, some of them had to move away, some of them um, died during the bombing. So this gap, this house shows all the people that go missing. And that's a good example of how you walk down a street and you find this very thought-provoking memorial. But as a traveler, you need to be open to that. I was just uh, heading down to Alexanderplatz and I turned left down to a little street and I found a memorial dedicated to the women who stood up against Hitler to free their men. The Rosenstrasse, Tell yes. Tell us about that one, yeah. Kind of as a last stand, the Nazis were trying to round up the last remaining Jews. They were still in Berlin at the time, uh, the so-called Fabrikaktion, I think yeah. it was. And they basically took a lot of the men away uh, in some kind of police district, police uh, house, to be deported kind of the next day. And the women of the men, that's the legend, as the legend yeah. goes. There's kind of mythical uh, things about it there, and the history is not quite clear about that. But And that was like in the time where it These was very These were Jewish dangerous. men married to German women, yes. and the German women went to the Nazi authority. Went to basically like do a little riot out in the street and saying, listen, we want our men back, let them out. And that was like quite dangerous because Pretty at the bold. time, anyone who would not fear, just, just a joke could get you into jail or mm. like beheaded. So they were pretty bold at that, and actually it looked like they were kind of, can't say what the Nazis were doing, but they were kind of tired of that, and they said, mm -hmm. okay, okay, we let the men go. Yeah. Yeah. 
But what I really find very, very haunting as well is the so-called memorial for the murdered Jews of Europe. You know, regardless whether you like memorials or not, once you're in Berlin, you should go and see it and, and feel for yourself because it's like made of 2,700 big concrete slabs mm -hmm. and it's kind of a labyrinth you can go through like there's little small walkways you can go through it's kind of going mm -hmm. a little bit unevenly down and these concrete slabs are slightly tilted so whenever you go and it looks kind of like a gray thing at first you think well a couple of stones nothing big but once you go inside you suddenly even like we did it a lot with a group you have like a group of 30 people and once you go inside you don't see anyone anymore you're alone and that's feeling this feeling of not knowing where you are and not knowing what is reality anymore, not knowing where your friends are anymore, that is very powerful. And I think like yeah. the architect who built it and it was opened in 2005 really did an amazing job. And the interesting thing is it's very important real estate. It's right by the American embassy just beyond Brandenburg Gate. And it's called the murdered Jews. That was a, a very carefully chosen word, I think. It's not a memorial to the victims of Hitler. It is to the murdered Jews. What was the thinking in Germany behind that? There was a long discussion how to exactly name this memorial. The first impulse was to just call it the Holocaust Memorial. Mm -hmm. But uh, that would have a little bit brushed under the carpet that there were victim groups that nobody had spoken about yet. They would have been basically almost ignored. And at the same time, the first goal of the Nazi regime was to exterminate all Jews in Europe. Mm -hmm. And then the other victim groups would have followed. So this was an next. admission that we murdered the Jews. Exactly. That was and a big deal from the government's point of view to actually say that. And that sort of opened the door to making, rather than just putting everybody together, making monuments to other singled-out groups. Because just across the street from there, you've got the memorial to the to homosexual the, victims. Yes, and to the, to the murdered Sinti and Roma, Sinti the, Roma. The, what you call the gypsies in English, and colloquial English. And when we think of uh, all of these memorials, there's one uh, little site that's not a memorial at all. It's just a parking lot nearby. Right. That's the site where Hitler's bunker was. And, of course, that's where Hitler died. It's merely a block from the... Memorial to the murdered Jews of I've Europe. I've noticed that tour guides are taking their groups to this spot that's sort of intentionally undeveloped and, and just a pile of dirt. But there is a concern in Germany of not making it a memorial. It's a sort of an interesting dance. You don't want to ignore it, but you don't want to make it a shrine for neo-Nazis. What's the, the thinking on the, the spot where Hitler committed suicide? Hitler's it, it was a back-and-forth game for the city of Berlin. Uh, first of all, they never would want to honor Hitler in any way. And therefore, they decided they would not even put an information board up. Mm -hmm. But then the uh, the World Cup drew near in 2006, and many, many tourists were going to this place at this point by local tour guides, who, of course, knew where this spot was. So at this point, the city decided they would look like people who were trying to brush the history under the carpet by not putting an information board there, at which point there was a board put there. Then somebody else put a private museum up nearby, which the city then found a little too tacky. So that one has now closed again politely requested by the government. Because there's all sorts of business interests that would love to capitalize on anything about voyeurism, you know, and there's a lot of gimmicky stuff for this kind of history. Yeah, but the interest is there of people. They they yeah. want to see, not because they like Hitler, but because no. they say, I mean, where did where, it all come did to it an all end? end? Yeah, and there is quite a good uh, information board there. Fabian Ruger and Holger Zimmer come to us from Berlin in Germany. They're joining us right now on Travel with Rick Steves to recommend the important monuments and memorials that you can visit in their historic city. Holger and Fabian, you're both historians. When you think just in general terms, why so much stress on memorials in Berlin, Holger? I think it's not like stress on memorials and such. It's just like that's the way it is. Like you can't avoid it in Berlin. And I do believe, you know, 
it's these layers of history that everywhere are there and they're to be seen. And I think it's rightly so and very valid that we will engage with the parts of history that we don't like and the parts of history that are very painful for ourselves, for the German nation, for the German people, for the culture. I think it's it's quite important that we have them and keep talking about them because this is what we're we're facing. We, we, we need to move on, but we also need to know we cannot just kind of like say this didn't happen. I mean, you still see bullet holes in Berlin. That, these are powerful memorials as well. Mm-hmm. The only way to learn from your past is to learn from your past mistakes. If you only emphasize the glorious moments of your own past, not the things that you know, went wrong in history, then you are bound to repeat those mistakes. And I think this nationwide consensus, actually, it didn't happen in just one day. It took, I think, the Germans a decade or two after World War II to realize that that is what they just had to do. And by the mid-1960s, this consensus had become the dominant majority. It was kind of a breakthrough, I remember, yeah. when that happened. because I was just starting to travel, and it was a very radical thing. We're talking about our difficult history. And as travelers, when we go to Berlin, we can get a huge dose of poignant and valuable history through the beautiful memorials of Berlin. Fabian Ruger, Holger Zimmer, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks a lot. Up next, guides from Spain. Take your calls at 877-333-7425 to help you plan a great getaway in their country. Later in the hour, we'll explore the growth of specially themed fairs and festivals that you can enjoy all across the countryside of Italy. A couple of months ago on Travel with Rick Steves, a panel of some of our favorite tour guides from Spain told us how their country's economy is on the rebound and how they feel a new creative energy is emerging. They reassured us that tourism in Spain remains resilient, pretty much unaffected by any of the country's economic issues. A number of our listeners have asked for a little help with their plans to visit Spain this year, so we've invited our panel back to take your calls at 877-333-RICK. We're joined now by lifelong Madrileño Federico Garcia Barroso. Amanda Buttinger moved from Maryland to make Madrid her home nearly 20 years ago, and Francisco Claria comes to us from Pamplona, on the edge of Basque Country, in the northeast of Spain. Federico, Amanda, Francisco, thanks for joining us. Hola. Hi, sure. Buenos dias. Buenos dias. Buenos dias. <laughs> it's so nice to have you all join us here in our studio, and you're all taking groups around Spain and so on. I'd like just a random thought. What's new in Spain? What's exciting in Spain for you as a guide? Let's start with Amanda. In Barcelona, I'm very excited because a lot of the modernist architecture has been opened up to the public on the block of Discord. There are three architectural buildings that are representing the modernist movement in Barcelona. And this is it's kind like of like Art that, Nouveau, that very trendy like Art Nouveau, Nouveau of Spain. And yeah. so now that you can access the interiors of all three of these buildings. So that's very exciting for me. Well, that's, that's great news because very frustrating for me in past years is standing in front of this Mm-hmm. famous, mm-hmm. beloved block of discord where every building is just screaming out its personality like, look at me, look at me, and we couldn't go inside. And the interiors are just as interesting as the exteriors, the innovations that they made with ventilation and heating and lighting, and really, it's, it's very fascinating. Really uh, futuristic, but 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. love exactly. that. Exactly. And Federico, what's new for you in, in Spain? Well, in Madrid, there is actually a museum, uh, our classic museum that is new now after the renovation, the National Archaeological Museum. There you find the history of mankind. It's, it's really spectacular to see how they did everything in such an avant-garde way, and then they give that iPad with a you self mean they renovated tour. it in an avant-garde way, a very yeah. um, modern, state-of-the-art. Totally. Now, totally. even with Spain's economic struggles, they're able to invest in a great new museum like this. Obviously, because tourism is our main income source, so that is basically the reason why. So uh, probably a lesson out of that is uh, if you're a tourist thinking of going to Spain and you might want to steer clear because of their economic struggles, mm-hmm. contrary, it's a good time <laughs> to go to Spain, and Spain really, really treasures is. its uh, tourist industry. 
Francisco. In the north, probably the big change this year, it's not new because it has about 800 years. It is the Camino de Santiago, St. James Path. Uh, this year is a holy year, so a lot of churches are going to be open. You're going to have a great chance to see new, beautiful, old churches. It's great. It's a great, great, great year to go to the So this is interesting. The Pope has declared an, an exceptional holy year mm -hmm. all the way until November yep. of 2016. And he also, it's a year of mercy. And part of the mercy is you can get the same indulgence value and not have to go to Rome. Is I, that your understanding? Yeah, I mean, I love my Pope, my new, the new Pope. This is a very special year because, you know, it's easier to get forgiveness and everything. So we can't start being bad again next year. <laughs> and you've got many reasons to go to that cathedral. Yes. yes. I mean, the thing is that the cathedrals <laughs> are so beautiful. And now they're going to have more. I love the cathedrals along the community Santiago. It is Burgos, Leon. Burgos, Leon. Santiago. And then, and then Santiago. Just perfect. You know, that's very interesting because we're talking about this medieval pilgrimage route that tens of thousands of people do it now. Mm -hmm. Every year it's very, very popular. And whether they're Roman Catholic pilgrims or, or just uh, people that want to find out what their life's all about. And this walk, which, what does it take, about 30 days to walk from the Pyrenees to... If you start in the border in France, in Saint-Jean-de-Pied-de-Port, it takes about 30, 31 days. So it's a 30-day hike with a, a spiritual or a explore your meaning of life experience oh. for a lot of people. And the culmination, you come into the main square, what happens? Right now we have more people that are not Christian doing the Camino de Santiago. The Camino is not just about religion, it's about spirituality. And I don't care what religion you are, you have soul, you have insights. So the Camino that takes 30, 35 days to walk is an introspection. It is about looking for yourself inside. It is a beautiful moment to be with you, to reconnect. In today's society, we're going fast, we have objectives and we have to do this and that and that. And we don't have time to be ourselves. You know, I've been there several times in recent years and also with you, and I am so struck by how successful the Camino is internally for the people who are taking the time to do it. The people that walk the Camino, a lot of people, they don't know the reason why they're walking, but they say that at the end, something happens. You get the spark of life again. So we're talking about Spain. We've got some guides with different perspectives. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. James is on the phone in Virginia Beach, Virginia. And uh, James, what are your travel plans to Spain? All right. I've been to Barcelona and Valencia and that part of Spain. But this time I'm going to be brave on my own. I'm flying to Madrid. And I'm going to rent a car and I'm going to go south and southwest. I'm going to do kind of a, a circle. I'm going to go to Granada, Cordoba, Seville, back up to Toledo, and then back to Madrid. I know the, you know, the big things to see, the Alhambra and whatever, but what should I look out for driving a car in that part of Spain and what are some sneaky things that aren't obvious? And this is great, James, because you've got a car, and that gives you the mobility. Amanda, if you were driving from Madrid down to Granada, what advice would you give somebody? Get used to seeing olive orchards. They're beautiful and just rolling hills of olive tree after olive tree. So my suggestion would be look around, nose around for a good olive oil mill where you could visit and do an olive oil tasting and I think that could be something very special since you are in the middle of so that's a good point you the could, highest producer you could yeah. get online and find an exactly. olive uh, exactly. orchard that welcomed visitors mm -hmm. and take the tour there Federico uh, when you are driving across Spain in your car sometimes you think you're uh, hallucinating but you see these giant silhouettes of bulls on the horizon that must be <laughs> 20 meters tall it seems like what are those those are actually coming from the, the wine company Osborne. 
Osborne is one of the most popular wines in Spain, and those cellars are in southern Spain. And there are about 30-something, if I'm not wrong, all over the Iberian Peninsula. Mm. And that is the stereotype of Spain, you see. And there they are, you know, promoting. I mean, it is not allowed anymore to make a kind of publicity about wine, you see. But we just need to see the profile huh. of the bull, and we immediately think about the wine. See, local this people. big black, I call it a bullboard rather than it a is. billboard. <laughs> <Yeah>. And uh, <laughs> it's, it makes for a good photo stop. And actually, yes, you can, <laughs> yes, you can actually pull across. When yeah. you see a uh-huh. little opening, you can pull over and take a, a very good picture. Francisco, if you're driving around, Amanda talked about uh, visiting uh, an olive uh, orchard or olive grove. What other kinds of countryside agritourism sort of experiences can you have well, in Spain in general? In Spain in general. If you're going to the south, you have to go to a sherry uh, winery. Okay. Sherry, it's, it's one of these wines that a lot of people don't think about it. There's a huge culture around it. Very proud culture. Yes, and it's so good because we only think of sherry, one kind. No, there are hundreds of kinds of sherries. You have to try them. And they're almost competitive in their hospitality to invite oh, people in. I mean, we're talking Andalusia. Everybody's <laughs> so nice. Now, so there's so a cool. town called Jerez. Jerez. J-E-R-E-Z, right? Mm-hmm. Jerez de la Frontera. And that would be the place for the most choice of yeah. sherry. And uh, you're going to find a lot of winery sort of sherry. You know, I houses. remember they've got these big casks of sherry that are aging in the, mm-hmm. in the traditional style. And they've actually got the name of a celebrity on the cask. Well, a lot of celebrities, they go to wineries and they do tastings and then they have their honor either to buy and they it's get aging, aging to aging with their, with their name, name, which is yeah. a great thing. They're very open and you can do great tastings. When you have a car and you're driving through the north of Spain, Rioja country, I find that is a very good place to drop by and not only see vineyards, but see some striking architecture at the same time. Francisco, that's your territory. If you're going to Rioja, what's a tip? If you go to La Rioja, you have to go to wineries, okay? We have the great Rioja wine region. And most of the wineries, you can visit them, and they have incredible architecture, like Marques de Rescal. They have a Frank Gehry. Calatrava. Uh, Calatrava. It's Isios. It's an incredible... It's like an architectural tour of wineries. Yeah. I mean, modern these... architecture. You could do a coffee table book just on the architecture of the visiting centers of the wineries. You could be hosted in some of those wineries. It's incredible. And it all, I think, is a good idea to do your planning in advance. Yes. So you know where to go. Yeah. And, uh, and when you have your car, I find driving in Spain is great because I remember when I was first going to Spain, there were no freeways. And now, it must be amazing. Like, Francisco, you grew up in Spain, Federico, uh, Amanda, in the last 20 years, to see the infrastructure of Spain. Federico, talk about the the growth of like just modern freeways, German style freeways. Yes, exactly. Everywhere, it's that's uh, very comfortable. People, many people, many travelers, they just enjoy to take a car and to go anywhere because our freeways are really good, really good. I mean, now we actually take, as I said before, the high speed train because we save time. Okay, but if you if you just want to travel in another way and you want to enjoy the landscape and those picturesque places where you stop and you meet people and you find. That is the best way to take the highways, really good highways. Are they free or do you pay a toll as you go? You pay a toll in some, some cases. Some of them, but, but many, many, many of them, them are free, free these days. Yeah, and I like to be in the middle of nowhere and stop in a little tiny hamlet and go to the one little bar or restaurant. And there may be a menu, but all they have is hamon and bread. Mm. <laughs> 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 and hamon and bread. And all of us are just kind of going, yes, España. That's some Spain. beautiful bread, some beautiful ham. And some wine. Uh, some wine. and uh, Life is good. <laughs> life is good. All right, James, thanks for your call. All right, thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're joined by three Spanish tour guides, uh, Francisco Glaria, Amanda Buttinger, and Federico Garcia Barroso. And we're inviting your calls. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Stacy's calling from Spring Hill in Florida. Hi, Stacy. Thanks for your call. Hey, Rick. 
Um, my question is this. I grew up in deep South Texas, and I think I have this fear of going to Spain because I'm afraid it's going to be like Mexico, and I, I just would like you all to help me get over that. I, we've enjoyed um, Italy and Germany and England and France, and I'm ready to go and see Spain, kind of, but I like I say, I just have this fear of it being too much like Mexico. You know, this is so interesting because a lot of us just think because they speak Spanish or something, it's the, the same sort of culture. I'll let Amanda talk to this because Amanda's an American and she's been in Spain for 20 years. And talk about the confusion. And I actually lived in Mexico too, so. (laughs) Okay, there you go. (laughs) There you go. It has nothing to do with Mexico. The language is the same, but it sounds different. You might understand Mexican Spanish, but you won't Spain Spanish. The food is very, very different. The people are very, very different. The music is different. The architecture is different. There are similarities. They both have tortillas. Ah, but the tortilla is very different. The tortilla, <laughs> the Mexican tortilla is like a bread, you know, with, with flour. And the, the Spanish tortilla is made with eggs and potatoes or, if you'd like, onions as well. Any so. other thoughts on Mexico versus Spain? Yeah, I just have to tell many Americans and Canadians, they, they think just because we speak Spanish that we talk about the same. Spain is not better, it's not worse than Latin America. It's just different in many mm-hmm. ways. We have mm-hmm. many more things in common with France and Italy. You could say two multiple. big things in common, the Spanish language and very Catholic. Yes, mm-hmm. in the heritage. Yeah, in the cultural heritage, and that's. But that's, uh, but after, yeah. and that may be contributing to the confusion. Maybe. maybe but after that, reason. it's two different cultures. Mm. D- does that uh, help you, Stacy? It does. It it sure does. I I've watched your shows, Rick, and and read your books, so I'm excited and I'm ready to give it a try. So I'll hope I'll enjoy it and come back with the joy that you've given us. You know, in Italy and Germany and France uh, as well. You will. You will have a great time. Thanks for your call. Thanks so much. Thank you. And Ron has emailed us, and uh, Ron is asking, uh, are you following the wonderful things happening in Malaga, uh, one of the New York Times' 52 places to visit in the coming year? Malaga is the big city in the south of Spain. It's sort of the capital from a transportation hub and infrastructure point of view of the uh, Costa del Sol, which is the most touristy and developed uh, commercialized part of Spanish tourism. With that introduction, can you uh, three tell me why New York Times would put Malaga on the on the top 50 places to visit in the whole world? Because Antonio Banderas is from there. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's a very beautiful place. It's a nice coastal city and has a lot of art. There's a Pablo Picasso. It's so a huge city, isn't it's it? It's a huge city. Very nice and relaxing Spanish city. Uh-huh. The point about Malaga is not only the, the city, I would say the province of Malaga. Malaga is actually the main international airport in southern Spain, and there are many Europeans and many Americans, people from everywhere go to Malaga to the coast. And the village, the mountain villages that we have in northern Malaga are also very interesting. It's all about many things to do and to enjoy in Malaga. Good weather, good food, happy people. Amanda. I haven't been to Malaga for ages, but a friend of ours has just been there, and he said it has transformed quite a bit. So perhaps mm. they're very concentrating on boosting their, Being more their visitors. For exactly. You should certainly take advantage of the Malaga airport because it's a very easy to fly there on, a, on an open-jaw flight mm-hmm. into Malaga and out of some other place. You could fly into Barcelona and out of Malaga on a trip from the United States, and that would be quite uh, efficient. And whenever I'm flying out of Spain from southern Spain, I find myself going to the Malaga airport I do find a lot of people that for some reason have a timeshare condo in Malaga and they end up spending an inordinate amount of time in Malaga when they could go to Ronda or they could go to Jerez or they could go to Tarifa or Nerja, all places that I just love. There's something also to say, you know, it's important to explain that right now Spain is offering the most modern fleet of high-speed trains in Europe. AVE, the AVE, 
alta velocidad española, Ajá. which means Spanish high speed, is connecting all the main places in eastern and southern Spain to Madrid. Madrid is the epicenter of the whole Iberian Peninsula, and we are still working to link those towns in northern Spain. But it is a big advantage for any traveler to go to Spain and take the high-speed train. So, Federico, if you were in Barcelona mm -hmm. or if you were in Sevilla mm -hmm. and you needed to get to Madrid, mm -hmm. would you fly or would you take the train? We just take the train. Well, the train is taking you from the city center to the city center. You travel with your suitcase and you really save time. It's really, really the best option. You travel with a suitcase? Yeah. <laughs> suitcase. <laughs> I like that concept. Always travel with a suitcase. I remember the old days. It took eight hours to take the train from Madrid to Sevilla. It was a major trip. And now it's like two and a half. Two and a half. And that's so it. you can make it literally a day trip if you wanted to. But the point is, you can go on the bullet trains as fast as you can fly within Spain. Our guides helping us plan a great trip to Spain today are Francisco Gloria from Pamplona and Madrid-based Federico Garcia Barroso and Amanda Buttinger. Our number at Travel with Rick Steves is 877-333-7425. And by email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. Mary's calling in from her classroom. She's a Spanish teacher in Carterville, Illinois. Mary, thanks for calling. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I have a question about the south of Spain. I have never been to Barcelona, and we're taking a side trip to Girona, which I know nothing about. And I wondered if Federico knew anything about the city. Yes, Mary, un saludo para todos los estudiantes de español. Para todos, un I saludo. Like <laughs> yes, well, I can tell you a few words about Girona. It's actually one of those picturesque towns located not far from Barcelona, if you take that high-speed train. It's a very old medieval town, and it's one of those treasures for the, from talking about the Jewish uh, legacy, you see. Many Jews go there just to visit the Jewish Museum, which is actually unique. It's one of the best places in Spain. I'm thinking about Toledo and other places. And that is basically one of the reasons why people go there. Girona is there. Just there. You capture the atmosphere of those medieval times. And it's not only about the town. It's also about the area, the enclave, where it is located next to the mountains, next to the rocky beaches. It's a really nice place to visit. Oh, wonderful. Do you have any special recommendations off your top of your head for places that I should make take my students? In, in Girona, well, actually, they will all love... I think that the teenagers love Salvador Dali. Girona is the oh. land of Dali, the land of surrealism. Uh -huh. And you can go to those three little villages where he spent part of his life and he created those amazing dreams, those, those surrealist masterpieces. So it's, that is another reason to go to Girona and those students will love you know, Dali's world. I will make sure to present that to them. Federico, can you talk about Salvador Dali's The Big Museum on His Tomb? Where is that? That is actually in a, in a Figueres. Figueres. Right? Yeah. Figueres is actually, then you go there and you see that castle, which is a kind of extravaganza castle and an explosion of fantasy. It is there we find some of those masterpieces, you see. Salvador, the, the, the surrealist. You know, many people go there because of that. And I think it's one of the highlights of uh, Girona and any kind of people, but especially students, they love that. Mary, can you have your uh, students uh, give us a, a big hearty hello in Spanish? Oh, I will. Let's go for favor. Vamos a decir una hola. Uno, uno, dos, tres. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Mary. Hey, well, have a great time with your class and good luck in your in your Spanish travels. I will. And muchas gracias, Federico. Gracias, Maria. We have one more caller waiting on the line for advice for an upcoming trip to Spain. So we'll continue with our Spanish guides and their tips for enjoying Spain this year in just a minute. Then, 
we're off to Italy to find out how the local summer and fall festivals in small country towns can really spice up your wanderings in the Italian countryside. It's Travel with Rick Steves. We'll help you find fun on the back roads and small towns of Italy in just a few minutes. Right now on Travel with Rick Steves, we're looking at some of the ways you can enjoy Spain this year with our guides Amanda Buttinger, Federico Garcia Barroso, and Francisco Glaria. Jill from Vancouver, B.C. joins us on the phone at 877-333-RICK. Jill, are you making plans for Spain this year? Well, hi, uh, Rick. Uh, I am thinking of going, and thank you so much for um, taking my call and my question. I was thinking of going to southern Spain, and I have time in the summer, and I really wanted to go to Sevilla and Cordoba and Granada. Uh, and then people said, well, maybe it's just too hot in July and August. And I wanted to know, you know, get some advice about whether it really is too hot, and if so, where could I go that's more quaint and scenic um, away yeah. from the big cities well, all with a of, lot of charm. All of my guides have just passed out from the heat and they're on the floor. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they're, both, they're all going, that's going to be hot. July and August in the south of Spain, it can be done. And you've all taken groups around the south of mm-hmm. Spain. Let's assume you only can go in the south of Spain and you're an American who's not used to this kind of heat. Amanda, how do you I think how do you, you manage? I think you need to understand that you need to adapt to the cooler hours of the day. So don't push yourself in the middle of the day. You feel hot, don't go out. Mm-hmm. Or go into the cathedral in Seville. Or find an air-conditioned museum. Or find an museum. air-conditioned museum. Yeah. And then in the, you know, go back to the hotel, rest, or sit in a cafe, or drink some sangria for a while. And then in the evening, go out, because that's when everyone is out and about. Sure. We were just talking to our Basque friend about how the children in the streets in Seville are all out playing in the evening. And I he said, that. oh, in, in San Sebastián, oh, my kid is inside all, all winter long, all fall, all winter, all spring long, because it's raining and cool. And in Seville, it's just so lively and everyone's out and about. So that's a children. plus, mm-hmm. but you've got to be out after dinner. Exactly. And I think, don't a lot of Spaniards, especially in the southern part, take a long lunch uh, because you don't want to be out in the streets? Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's basically why do th- we do things in a different way than many other people do. In Northern Europe, you know, I mean, late breakfast, late lunch, late dinner, because the, the sun is there shining for hours and the heat is there in summertime. So that is basically, I, I totally agree with Amanda's suggestions. If you're in Granada or Sevilla and, and you're out on the street and all you see is other tourists, it's probably mm-hmm. 2 o'clock. It's 2 mm-hmm. o'clock. <laughs> and I always say, if you're in Spain and it's in the summertime, become a little Spanish and buy yourself a fan, an yeah. abanico, yeah. and yes. use it. <laughs> use yeah. the best air conditioning in the world. Jill, does that help? Oh, fantastic. That's a huge help. Thank you. So, obviously, it's going to be hot. And remember, Spain is, uh, the, the topography of Spain is like an upside-down cereal bowl. It's got a little lip around the water, and then it goes high, and there's a high interior. Uh, it's going to be hot all over the place, but really hot in the south. If you go into the interior, you've got higher altitude. And then up in the north, where Francisco lives, it's it's almost like, feels like Ireland sometimes. I mean, yeah, a lot of people from Spain, they come all the way to the north because it's, uh, we have sun, but it's not too hot. Franco's favorite uh, summertime destination, I have to remind you. Thank you for reminding that. The beach town in the north. Thanks Thank for your you call. so much, everybody. It was great. Thanks for your call, Jill. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. I want to close this beautiful discussion just by letting each of you share one of the great joys when you're taking an American around your country. Uh, and we'll start with Amanda. I enjoy introducing them to how you go and get food, how you order food, the differences of that, and and how it can be much more enjoyable. 
when you when know, you the, know rules. the rules yeah. and and getting them out of their comfort zone to so, to go up to that bar and and push their way up to say I would like a wine please I would like a glass of wine or or whatever and then also to enjoy the meal for two hours it makes a great deal to if to, you're not to, in to a, know yeah. the rules mm-hmm. and to know the tempo mm-hmm. Federico. It's true. It's all about food, about weather. <laughs> personally, personally, I really enjoy to take American and Canadians to those museums and to discover that amazing legacy that they might not necessarily know, you see. Mm-hmm. And then when they come into the Prado in Madrid and they see all those masterpieces, mm. they wow. I mean, they have actually in their minds all the museums, other art galleries in Europe, and the Prado is absolutely unique. The Prado, my vote for the greatest collection of paintings, bar none, anywhere in Europe. And it's there in Spain because the Spanish emperor, Holy Roman Emperor, was the top top guy of all of Europe. He's actually the most time. powerful man on earth in those early 1500s. And thanks to him, there we have all that collection. And Francisco Gloria. Oh, you guys are such nice people. I'm not. I love to put everybody on the spot. I love talking about bullfighting. I <laughs> love bullfighting. I imagine all the Americans looking at me like, are you crazy? <laughs> I love bullfighting. Having this conversation, trying to make people understand what's behind the bullfighting, that it's not just animal mistreating, there's passion, there's history, there's tradition. It is probably one of my favorite topics to talk with Americans. Hemingway called it something like this glorious battle between an animal on four legs with an animal with two, two legs. legs. Yes, it is. It's about pride. It's about, it's beautiful. I it's, love it's bullfighting. It's deeply into your culture and I think if you want to read about the bullfights, you don't go to the sports section, don't you? No, no, no. Where no. do you go in the newspaper? I mean, you go to the art section, or it's like a tra- I mean, there's nothing to do with sports. So bullfighting is art and culture from a Spanish point of view. From a Spanish point of view, it's art, it's beauty, it's passion. On that note, I'm going to thank each of you for joining us, and uh, you've inspired me to get over to Spain and, and uh, embrace that culture. We'll Thanks. see you there. Thank you. I think some of the best things about traveling are the pleasant surprises. Surprises like the people you never expected to meet or the places you just happen to stumble upon. If you rent a car to explore the countryside of Italy during the summer and fall, there's a good chance you'll come across a uniquely Italian type of local food festival. Italian tour guide Cecilia Botai joins us now to recommend making time in your itinerary to enjoy these themed festivals. Locals call them sagre. Cecilia, thanks for being here. Thank you for inviting me. So describe a, a sagra. What is that exactly? Well, the sagra is uh, an event that has a very long tradition in history. The sagra comes from sacred, sacro, because that was sort of a food or product festival that was done in front of the temples first, the churches next. In the church or temple yard, there would be a celebration because of that harvest went well and so forth. So it's a harvest festival that it's goes It's a harvest festival, back food for, back to ancient uh, times. Ancient, very ancient times. Okay. Sagra comes from sacro, sacred, and the, the space in front of the church that you call the churchyard or the temple yard. So in even in ancient been, times, thanking the gods for the harvest. Thanking the gods for the harvest. And this is how this developed. Now, how does a tourist today who's exploring Italy learn where these festivals are? Well, you have posters everywhere. You go online, you Google Sagra, Sagre in Italy, uh-huh. and you have a list of maybe a thousand. Oh, my goodness. So Sagra in singular is S-A-G-R-A. 
Yes. And uh, now, are they usually in the village, in front of the church, on the main square, at a farm? Where they would you find it? They used to be in front of the churches. This is what we call the Sagrato, ah, the okay. La Chiesa, the space in front of the church. Now they are in villages and in smaller sites, never in a city. Never in a city? No. Okay. They're only in the, these small villages. Because it's, it's a farm should, action thing. It's, it's, it's more than a farm action thing. It's, it's something related to the, the small community. Okay. And they also have a target now. A target. The target is to make some money for the community. Oh, okay. Let's suppose this community wants to make some extra money, needs some extra money for the uh, children's playgrounds. Oh, okay, so, so they a organize a festival, which is a sagra. Everybody volunteers. The money they make goes into that project. And this village might be famous for its artichokes. Well, artichokes are, you really have a thousand at least. <laughs> okay, so is it mostly in the fall during harvest time or can it be also in the spring and summer? Well, they go all year long. Of mm-hmm. course, since one of the reasons is to make some extra money, not just to celebrate life together, most of the sagras are done during the good season. That means when there is no rain, when there is more people around, when people have their holidays, so that can really gather together okay. a lot of people to make what they want. And but when would that be normally? Uh, I would say they start around May and okay. the end October. Now, I'm thinking in terms of uh, harvest in a, in a farm, but is it also involving hunting? and, and Of course. And, and, no. So what sort of a hunting dimension would there be to Wild these festivals? Wild boar sagra. Wild boar. Yeah. Have you ever had wild boar, Rick? I have. I love it. Have you ever seen a wild boar in front of you? No. Yeah, that's a quite an experience, <laughs> I can tell you. So well, what, what, are, what is the meat that might be hunted and then celebrated in a sagra? Could be meat, uh-huh. could be fish, could uh-huh. be jackrabbit, could be wild boar, could be any kind of bird that you can eat, could be any sort of fish that goes with a specific kind of pasta, the, the goose. We ah, have close to the goose sagra. <laughs> I'm curious about this boar because uh, I loved the boar meat. What might you eat in a village in Italy at a wild boar sagra? You want to eat the wild boar uh, stew. You might eat the local style of pasta with a wild boar ragu. Mm. You might eat the ham made with wild boar meat, the sausages made with wild boar meat. You can do... Mm. Mm. A lot of different recipes with a wild boar. So if you're going to a sagra, you should not eat first. You should come with an appetite. No, you should not eat for a week, <laughs> and then you go there and you eat. <laughs> this is Travel with Rick Steves. We're fantasizing about food right off of the farm, food fresh from the hunt as we travel around Italy, and we have our eyes peeled for Sagra. That's a village harvest festival. We're talking with Cecilia Botai, and Cecilia lives, uh, spends her time in, uh, between a farm where, the, where she produces some beautiful wine in Orvieto and in Rome. Cecilia, if we're talking about a particular village and a particular production, one of my favorite memories is I was in a village in Tuscany and it was an artichoke festival and everybody was happily cutting up the artichokes and and cooking them up and, and selling them on sticks and raising money. It was a community feel. Describe some of your favorite memories of different sagri that you have uh, stumbled onto or gone to for a little vacation. Well, I can tell you that I like them all. And I can tell you that when I used to live in Florence, I would go out with friends in the countryside to have dinner at the Sagra. Hmm. Uh, It's a nice experience because that is only cooked by very local people. Mm -hmm. The traditional cook is, you can picture a a short woman, which we have an expression in Italy for how robust she is. It's easier to jump on her rather than walk around her because she's really the typical Italian (laughs) mother. it's quicker to jump over her than walk around her. Yeah, because they're they're very into Sort of a, a local babushka. Yeah. Local babushka, uh-huh. perfect. 
And then you go there, you buy uh, your ticket for the food you want to have, and then you sit on a bench close to people you've never seen before in your life. There might be local people or tourists, but from Italy mainly, you have an excellent kind of food or quality of food, sorry, which is absolutely local. Nothing comes from anywhere around. That's what we call chilometro zero, zero mile. That means it's really local for a very little amount of money. And you feed yourself with, what can I say, 12, 13 euro. Uh You, You can talk with somebody who's next to you. You enjoy an open space. If you have children, they can play around, and that's it. And I would imagine there's some local wine along with that zero-kilometer concept. Can you imagine a meal with that wine in Italy? I really You can imagine it, (laughs) but it doesn't exist. So you got your wine and you got your passionate, whatever they're cooking up, whatever they're growing, whatever they're hunting. You you mentioned zero-kilometer. Tell me more about this because I hear this term a lot when it comes to eating in a very local way. What what is zero-kilometer eating in Italy? Zero kilometer eating means that you eat whatever dish or whatever cheese or whatever that comes from close by. You know that due to the increase of transportation, now mm-hmm. we can get uh, in Italy uh, sauerkraut from Germany. Mm-hmm. The Germans might get um, buffalo mozzarella from Salerno. And that is nice. But sometimes you lose a little bit of the quality. If you have a zero mile, that means something that has to be produced within Uh, 150 miles, actually, you have something which is absolutely local and you can make sure it's fresh. So you can imagine on your farm near Orvieto, you could have the bread, the cheese, the meat, the wine. Produced within 10 miles. And that's something that it takes on a a special quality because you know you've got that, that heritage, the sustainability if you care about the environment you absolutely. didn't spend a lot of extra energy absolutely and you you very often know who made them so i know who made that cheese that makes a huge difference just to know the person that made the polenta absolutely in italy we have very often this tradition generations after generations doing the same thing you know mm-hmm. myself i'm one of them uh, because of your wine your because of my saying, wines yeah. but i know people who've been making cheese for whatever years but how so many generations so mm-hmm. i know where the cheese come from and now we have people going back to that. That's the surprise. So there is a movement not to the supermarket in the suburbs, but to zero-kilometer eating. Not only that, to abandoning the modern, contemporary life, mm-hmm. they quit a very nice and profitable job, mm-hmm. and they start remaking mm-hmm. the real food. It's more expensive. It's more expensive, but wait a second. We are in Italy now redeveloping a non-wasting way of cooking. What do you mean? In the past, you would cook a cow. Let's say if you're not vegetarian, you cook the cow, we say, from the horns to the tail. The tail, called the lavacinare, is a very famous Roman recipe. In the 70s, you would have only filet. And now we're getting back to that. What do I do with the tongue? What do I do with the tail? Well, the same is for smaller animals, chicken. What do I do with the chicken? I can boil the chicken. I can make the broth. I can make the soup. I eat the meat and I cook the veggies together. And if one chicken costs you 20 euro instead of five, but you have the ability to make with one chicken the entire meal, in the end you eat better and costs you less. Time and money. Cecilia Botai divides her time between her family's vineyards in Norvieto and leading tours around Italy from her base in Rome. She's introducing us to the tradition of Sagra festivals. These are festivals that celebrate the harvest and local specialties all across the countryside of Italy. Cecilia, I'm just going to say a few words, and I'd like you to just talk about what that might mean to you, where you might find it at a sagra, gnocchi. Gnocchi, the sagra degli gnocchi, I have one very close by me, 
Lake Bolsena because that is an area where they make great potatoes. So they have potatoes, they celebrate their gnocchi, and they you can go to a village. To a village where you have the gnocchi made there. Porcini mushrooms. Porcini mushrooms, it's usually end of August when they do it, or October in Tuscany, in the Chianti region. Otherwise, the mushrooms, sagras, are also in the Maremma Toscana, which is the coast of Tuscany. Mm-hmm. And this is when you get them and where you get them. And that would be in the late summer and Late early summer and early fall. Tortellini. Tortellini, Emilia-Romagna. You have to go there. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Although they make tortellini everywhere, but Emilia-Romagna is famous for Where that. Where is Emilia-Romagna? Emilia-Romagna is what we consider, geographically speaking, the start of the north of Italy, which ah, okay. is right north of Florence. When you cross the Apennine, the Apennini, you get to Bologna. Uh-huh. So Let's that, say Pavarotti's area. Okay, <laughs> okay, okay. And I'm sure he enjoyed a few sagas. Oh, yes, I, I'm sure. Polenta. Ah, Polenta, you have it both in Emilia-Romagna and in the Veneto region. Veneto region is Venezia, Verona. This is where they're famous for Polenta, that you can dress with any sauce you want. Because you have, it's like cornbread. But it's you, cornbread. How you would you cook? dress it up with different sauces? What oh, you can make it with ragu. You can make it with the stockfish, Polenta con bacala. It's very mm-hmm. famous up there. You can make it with cheeses. If you are, live up in the north where they have the mountains with the uh-huh. beautiful cheeses, you make the polenta and you, you have the, the cheese that melts on top of the polenta. Uh-huh. It's, uh, well, not for a Weight Watchers diet, but it's tasty, I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> now, it is so fun to be able to just talk with you and imagine a lifetime of enjoying these festivals of food. For the little finishing off of our, our conversation here, share with me one favorite moment that you've had at a sagra. Well, I was with a lot of friends that was in the Maremma area and there was the Sagra of the Porcini. And uh, we sat there. We were already quite a few people. There was a long table. All of a sudden, we started speaking with the people next to us because we had to sort of uh, split in the group because there was not enough room for us. And we found ourselves in a table that was covering almost all over Italy. And you know how I call my country, the United States of Italy. We had lovely food and I was sharing some experiences with someone from Sicily. My husband, who's from Calabria, was sharing with somebody from Piemonte. All of a sudden, that became a long table of friends who had never seen each other's before. And we are talking about the difference on how to cook the porcini here and there, how you would enjoy them the best. And in Tuscany, and then there was a little bit of a conflict who made the best ones, of course. <laughs> so, but that was so Italian. And we spent two hours and a half with people we never knew before that moment. And that it was a memorable night. A great way to celebrate the diversity and bring together uh, Italy with its common denominator, something that all Italians seem to have in common, a love of good food. Oh, yes. Eden locally, Eden with the season. Absolutely. Never forget that. Eden with the season. Cecilia Botai, buon appetito and mille grazie. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner. We get website support from Andrew Wakeling. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. When you're traveling, you can find out when other stations air travel with Rick Steves. Look online for our affiliate listings in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. Rick Steves Italy is America's top-selling Italian guidebook. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find guidebooks and phrasebooks for Spain, Germany, and every other corner of Europe. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.